0: This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Funding for Egedet Hachuva, the Epistle on Repentance, is provided by Isaac, son of Devorah Mindel. Lessons in Tanya the Tanya of Rabbi Schneur Zalman of Liadi, taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text, elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg.
1: Page 1045. So just to give a brief overview. He says, in order to understand, in order to explain... When we say that the Jewish soul is made up of Hashem's name, so first we have to understand the meaning of Hashem's name, the four letters, Yud, which is made up of four letters, Yud, Ke, Vav, Vavke. And he explains that the four letters, each letter represents another of the Svirot, of the tenth Svirot. And he quotes the uh, saying, the famous statement of Elijah the Prophet, Which is brought down in the Zohar, which we say every Friday afternoon. We we say this Elio opened up, and he says there in the opening that you, God, have emanated from within yourself the ten tikkunim, ten jewelry. It's something that, you know, jewelry is more than a garment, it's something that you identify with, it's something that expresses something of yourself in your jewelry. And these are the ten sefirot with which God conducts the hidden worlds. And you are wise, but not with a knowable wisdom. You understand, but not with a knowable attribute of understanding. God emanates from within Himself all the ten sefirot, beginning with wisdom and then followed by understanding. But God Himself also contains within Himself these ten sefirot. Not with a knowable attribute of wisdom, Hashem contains Within the infinite, Hashem contains within Himself the ten Svirot. But the question is, this is not the first time in the Tanya, this is the third part of the Tanya. The Tanya discusses many times the ten Sfirot. Why does Alter Rebbe find it necessary to quote here Elijah, the statement of Elijah the Prophet? The first time that the ten sefirot are mentioned, And this is the essential part of the Kabbalah. Kabbalah means it's been received. How do we know there are 10 sfirot? Only 10 dimensions, not 9, not 11. It's not a logical thing, it's not a philosophical thing. It's something that we've received. It's a tradition. We've received all the way back from Moses, and even earlier than that, the very first Kabbalistic work was actually authored by Avram. Actually, we even have a Kabbalistic work that traditionally was authored by Adam. It's called Raziel the Angel. But the famous Kabbalistic work, the Book of Formation, which was written by Abraham, Avram, our forefather, our patriarch, the greatest Kabbalist that ever lived, Avram. And in it, he describes the 10 Svirot. Avram received it from his teacher, from Shem, from Noah, who received it from Esrushala, who received it from Adam, directly from God so if you're looking for a source go back to the original the original source the first time that we learn of the ten Svirot the book of affirmation written by Abraham. why does he go quote Elijah the prophet and why does he why does he quote this, the second part when he's trying to describe the ten Svirot he says God is wise but not with a wisdom not with a knowable wisdom not with a knowable wisdom refers to the level that's beyond the ten Svirot because God himself transcends the sphere of God is undefined. You can't. You can't say God is wisdom. Not even infinite wisdom. God is not wisdom. God is completely undefined. You know, we can't straightjacket God. We can't use terminology and definitions that we are we are using. It's a de, it's a description. Wisdom is a description. A definition. Understanding is a definition. It's wisdom, and not love. It's love and there's compassion and all the sphere of. God is. Undefined, not only is God infinite, infinite wisdom, God is undefined. So, we are saying that God is wise, but not with a wisdom that's known, because God within Himself is beyond wisdom. But here we're trying to describe and explain the ten Sfirot, where God emanates from within Himself a ten Sfirot. And these ten Sfirot are represented by the four letters of God's name, Yud, Kei, Vav, So the Rebbe explains, because the purpose of this chapter, the purpose of this part of the Tanya, is to explain, how is it possible for someone who sinned, how is it possible for them to do Teshuvah, to restore your soul back to its pristine state? How do you recapture your innocence? You're a goner, you sinned, you lost your innocence, you messed up already, you've done, you've done your damage. You're an adult. You've done your damage. How do you recapture that innocence, that purity? And that's why he brings from Elijah, the statement of Elijah the prophet, that God emanates from within himself the ten spheroth. God himself is beyond the ten sphere. God himself is not only infinite, but is undefined. You can't describe God. You can't define Him. You can't call Him by a name. A name is a description. See, even the name, Yudke Vavke, is God's name. It's His essential name. We don't substitute it for anything else, unlike the other names that you're not allowed to erase, the holy names, Elohim. Elohim, we use for an angel, we saw earlier. We use it for a judge. All the other names of God, we can use for other, the Master, the Head of Legions, but Yudke Vavke is God's essential name. It's reserved for God Himself. It's God's being. But nevertheless, it's a description of God. The way we can describe, when you can use words and letters to define and to describe. So even when you're defining and describing God, God is past, present, and future together simultaneously, but still you're using human terminology, using human terms to define. Even when you say eternity, you're talking about human definitions. Because eternity is when you have a concept of time, but the time goes on eternally. God really transcends the whole frame of reference, the whole frame of time. But to say that even that God is eternal is already also, you're speaking already within the framework of time. So you say God is past and God is present and God is future all together. But the truth is God transcends the whole frame of reference. Time, space, concepts, ideas, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, these are too limiting to define God. You know, we are limited because we are limited to our five senses and we are limited to time, space, concepts, ideas, words, numbers. That's our whole frame of reference, that's our whole universe. Words, letters. But the truth is, God is undefined. God is limited to create five senses. God could have created ten senses. We can't even imagine a seventh sense. Can we imagine an eighth sense? Try to imagine. Just imagine. Your creative genius. Try to imagine a, a, a seventh sense, like hearing or seeing or taste, touch. No, It's impossible. It's, you can't. You can imagine a, a Martian as a thousand years. Okay. But you can't imagine out of the box. You can't think of something... It's like a blind person. Could a blind person imagine what colors is, what sight is? No. It's impossible. A person who's born blind cannot relate, has no clue. Talk to a blind person. He has no clue. Sight, he, uh, colors, it means nothing to him. He has no frame of reference. He has no experience. It's not part of his experience. But God is not limited. God could have created ten senses, a hundred senses, a thousand senses, infinite senses. So to limit and to jacket God to our, our whole universe, God is totally beyond wisdom and beyond understanding and beyond knowledge and beyond compassion and beyond time and space and concepts and words and letters and numbers. and God is beyond that whole... So any name, any word, any letter is too limited to define and to describe. That's what Elijah the prophet says, you God emanate from within yourself, you elicit, you yourself are beyond the 10th spirit, but you elicit the 10th spirit, and you yourself are unknowing, you have wisdom within you, but it's unknowable, and therefore, that is why teshuva is possible, that is why it is possible to restore our innocence, and restore our purity, no matter how, Much we've sinned, no matter what we've done, no matter what we've experienced. Even if we've done it willingly, even if by our negative, poor choices, we made every mistake in the book, and we acted in ways that are totally selfish and self-centered and self-absorbed, and the antithesis of we did everything wrong. And yet, nevertheless, we can always reach a point which touches God's essence which is totally transcends any definition, any description. And therefore, we can always restore our innocence and purity. We can always touch a place that's beyond, that we, we can't touch. Even we don't have the power, the freedom of choice to destroy or to touch that place. Deep down within us, we have a piece of Hashem inside of us, And that place, if we touch that place, we can recapture and restore our ends. That's why he quotes the statement of Elijah the prophet. Because that was the theme of Elijah's life. The theme of Elijah's life was Baal return. He was the one who returned the Jewish people. They all were steeped in idolatry. And it was Elijah who gathered the Jews around Mount Carmel... And they all yelled out seven, uh, seven times, Hashem. They all yelled out together, Hashem huolekim. And we say it seven times at the end of Yom Kippur service, Hashem huolekim. God is God. He got the Jewish people to come back to God. And that's the role of Elijah, who's going to herald the messianic era. He's going to get the Jewish people. He's going to get the youth and the Jewish people to come back to reconnect to their heritage. And that will herald the coming of Mashiach. So Elijah's theme is Teshuvah, return. That's why he quotes Elijah the Prophet, the statement, as it's known, the statement of Elijah the Prophet. He wants to evoke, invoke Elijah the Prophet, because that was the theme of Elijah the Prophet. idea of Teshuvah. And Elijah the Prophet is explaining his life mission, his life statement, his mission statement. He's explaining with this concept, with this famous quote of Elijah the Prophet, that God elicited from within himself the ten sefirot, but God himself is beyond the sefirot. And therefore, the damage that we do could only affect that place that could be defined and could be described in that limited space, that surface space. But the core, the essence, which remains undefined, that place cannot be touched, cannot be affected. And if we tap into that place, we can always restore and recapture that purity in us. But that explanation is inadequate. Why? Because like we said, the idea of teshuva, right at the beginning, the first chapter. Yes, teshuva you can restore your innocence in one split second. But the purpose of Teshuvah is not only to recapture that innocence. The purpose of Teshuvah is also to mend any damage that we've done. To fix any damage. So, if the damage is on the surface, on the conscious, the tense we wrote at the beginning of consciousness, divine consciousness, but consciousness nonetheless. But you're saying there is a space within us that's subconscious, that's much deeper, and that remains pure and intact and whole and untouchable. And if we access that place, we can restore our innocence. But how does that mend and fix the damage that is done? The damage is on the conscious level. So the conscious level has been frayed and destroyed. So yes, you're touching that infinite, that undefined place, which completely transcends the whole frame of reference. So fine. Yes, you could become pure and innocent, but how do you fix the damage that you've done? How do you draw down from that level to the world of consciousness? Yes, maybe you can touch the world of subconsciousness. But we don't operate in that world. We live in the world of consciousness. This is our frame of reference. This is our life. So how do you come back into the world of consciousness, into your daily life, into the, into the world of words and ideas? And how do you bring back that innocence... And mend any damage that you've done. And any scars that have been created. How do you heal those scars? How do you bridge that infinite undefined with our conscious self? How do you bring that back into words? Into the world of words? You talk about a world without words. A place without words. There are no words. Which is indescribable. Pure, pristine experience. How do you bring that back into the world of words? That's the world that we inhabit. That's our world. And that's where the damage was done. How do you bring back this purity? How do you restore that damage that was done? How do you heal that wound? And that's why he says that God contains within himself all these ten spheres. But they're hidden. But they're there. And therefore, since God contains within Himself all these ten spheres, therefore, we could bridge, we could make a connection between that undefined, that pure world and our world of consciousness. In other words, we can learn to use words in a new way. Words don't have to be Something that's split off, that disconnects us, it's disconnected. Naturally, words are disconnected. And words contradict the pure experience, take us away from the pure experience. You know, you talk about something, you talk about something to death, and then you lose the whole, the whole richness of the experience. You know, sometimes you 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 just feel connected and everything is good until you start thinking about it. <laughs> and, then, and then you ruin it. Don't think, experience, just enjoy it for the moment. You're, you're in the zone, you're in the moment, just experience. But then you start analyzing and dissecting and start putting it into words and you kill the whole thing. Like some people, brilliant, they, they talk everything to death and you lose the whole, the whole energy, the whole enthusiasm, the whole excitement, the whole... Experience is gone. By the time they talk it to death, you've lost the whole experience. How do you bridge those two worlds? How do you live and operate in a world of communication, a world of words, in the world of thought, without losing that innocence, that purity, that pure experience? Is that even possible? It seems two opposites, a paradox. So that's what he says that God contains within himself these ten sfirot so even God himself who is infinite and undefined contains within himself the ten sfirot and obviously when it's contained within God it's a paradox that there is no conflict the words do not take away from the purity from the experience it's a different word most words remove us from the experience but There are those well fortunate once in a while to hear words that sear into your soul, that leave an impression for a lifetime. You know, words that are so special you never forget the rest of your life. For example, "Will you marry me?" You know, some (laughs) words (laughs) change you forever. These are not words; they're words and they're words. You know, most words are just words, and we're living in a in a a world of uh, verbal inflation. (laughs) Words have grown exponentially, and the more words, the less light, and the less illumination, and the more darkness. It just, just buries, everything is buried in, you know, an excessive verbiosity. But then you have words that penetrate, that pierce, that illuminate, that elevate, that soar, that touches you deeply, that sing in your soul poetry, words that are special, so that combination is possible. And that's the ideal of Truva. The ultimate level of teshuva is not just to briefly touch and experience a place which is pure and pristine. But ultimately the purpose of shuva as we learn in chapter 1, the ultimate Truva is to bring that back into your daily life, to integrate that into your daily life, in our conscious life. We operate on this plane. We operate on... This is our frame of reference. We live with words. We live with ideas. This is our world, our consciousness. This is the Ten Sfirot. This is our whole frame of reference. This is the world that we inhabit. So if it's just about touching the infinite, that's such an otherworldly, out there experience. And even if you touch it for a brief moment, but that doesn't help you mend, restore, integrate, bring it back into your daily life. So he says that God contains within himself the Ten Sfirot. But the way the ten Svirot are contained within God, they're not known. Without a noble, but not with a noble attribute of wisdom. It's a different type of wisdom. It's a different type of words. These are words that don't take away from the experience. These are words that flow from the experience, that, 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 that emerge with the experience, that just amplify, enhance, bring out the experience, without losing that purity, that innocence. So therefore, Teshuvah is possible. And that's why he says, on the top of page 1043, that all the ten sfirot are included and represented in the name of Hashem. Included and represented. There's a difference. Included means when the word contains a clear definition, a clear meaning. So the word contains a word has a meaning. So the words and the letters of the word contain this meaning. They carry this meaning. They contain within it the meaning of the word. That's what he means that the ten spirit are included in the word of Hashem, Yudke Vavke. They're included in these letters and in this word. They carry the content of they express God's name. They carry the meaning and the content of God's name. And that's why it's a holy name, because they contain God's holiness. The words and the letters itself is going to explain the shape of the letter the letters itself contain the ten Svirot. But then he says they represent the ten Svirot. Because we know the ten Svirot is two parts. There is the vessel and then there is the light. Because God himself is infinite. is undefined. And like the famous analogy that the Kabbalists use, Rabbi, Rabbi Moshe Kurdjieviro, it's like you take water. Water is colorless. And you take water and you pour the water through different colored glasses, glass bottles. Now the water suddenly looks red, looks blue, looks yellow. The water is like the light. The light is undefined. The light is not yellow and the light is not red and the light is not... But it's when the light passes through the vessel, the vessel gives it its shape and its color. So now the the outsider is looking at the vessel, sees yellow yellow light, a light passes through and suddenly it colors the yellow light or white, depending on the vessel so the light itself, the godly light God is infinite, God is not defined God is neither wisdom, God is neither understanding God is neither love, nor compassion, nor strength but when this infinite light passes through, so to speak, through the vessel so therefore the effect of the light passing through the vessel is the effect is wisdom. Now you have wisdom. You're seeing divine wisdom, divine understanding, divine love, divine compassion, divine strength. So there's a difference between the light and the vessel. The vessel is defined. So the vessel has a de- definition. So when you talk of the ten sfirot, the way they are defined, each sfirot is defined has its own definition that refers to the vessel of the sphere and that is included in the letters the shape of the letters in the word the word actually contains this idea of the tenth spirit the light however the light the infinite light that's contained within the vessel that only represents like hinted at it's like a difference between a word which communicates an idea very clearly versus a riddle the answer is hidden here it's it's hinted at but it's only a hint it's not clear in the words in the letters somewhere here you find the answer there's the there's a, there's a thought but the thought is not conveyed clearly it's only a riddle it's hinted at so in that sense the Ten viro the light of the Ten viro which is infinite cannot really be contained in the word in the name of Hashem, Yudkei Vavke. Because words and letters cannot convey clearly, words and letters that are defined and limited cannot convey clearly the idea of the light, which is infinite. But it hints at the light. It could convey, the words and the letters could convey the vessel, the definition of the 10th spherot. That's actually contained, just like a word conveys and communicates clearly the meaning of the word. But then you had the idea of a riddle. The words cannot... The idea is too deep for the words to convey it clearly. It just hints at. If you look carefully at the words, you can figure it out. The answer to the riddle is here somewhere. It's not clear, but it's here somewhere. So it only hints at a very deep idea, a very deep concept. So... The vessel of the Ten Svirot could be conveyed clearly through the name Yudke Vavke, the word, the letters. But the the light that could only be hinted at. It can't be conveyed clearly, because it's infinite. And something that's infinite can't be conveyed in words and letters. But nevertheless, it's hinted at. Then when he describes the first letter, Yud, first he said that all the Ten Svirot are included and represented in the name Yudke Kei Vavke. And then he starts explaining. All ten Tzvirot, meaning including Chachma, from wisdom all the way down until the lowest, which is speech, communication. And he starts elaborating. Page 1043. The Yud, the Yud is a Dat. It's a Dat. So the Yud represents the idea of Chachma, the creative genius, the creative Idea, The beginning of consciousness, the birth of consciousness, the revelation, the intense revelation, the eureka moment, the sudden inspiration, out of the blue, everything clicks, everything... This is Chochm, and it's only a dat, because it's just a vague concept, I still can't articulate it, I still can't explain it, even to myself, it's more like a sense, a felt sense, you just get a sense, it's alright, I figured it out, suddenly out of the blue... Something there's a bolt of lightning, just a flash in the brain, and suddenly a light bulb goes on, and you get you get it. I have I have an idea. I have a way out. I found my way out. Before this I was confused and confounded and I, I thought I reached a dead end and I have no idea. I can't understand it, it makes no sense, and the more I the more I delve into it, the more confounded and confused I become. And then suddenly this flash, this brilliant flash of lightning, and I figure it out. Spontaneous combustion. Spontaneous, right. And that's the creative genius. The creative genius is that the person has a window to the soul, a window to the subconscious, and gets communications. Flashes. Uh, IMs from your, from your subconscious suddenly out of the blue. Where did this idea come from? I don't know. It came somewhere inside of me, but it just came out of the blue. A, bolting, a bolt of lightning. And when the lightning illuminates for a moment, now I see everything. But then it becomes dark again because I, don't, I can't define it. I don't... Can articulate it? I don't have the words, the language to explain it. It's more like a feeling, a sense. So it's a dot. It's just a dot. That's the yud. The yud is a dot. So he says the dot hints at, indicates, hints at God's wisdom. Why does he only use hints when a moment ago he said that all the ten wrote, including wisdom, are included and hinted at in the names yud Vavke. And here he says that the yud only hints at wisdom. You see it in the shape of the letter. That, and the answer is because wisdom. From all the ten wrote, wisdom is like the king. Wisdom is the spark of consciousness. Wisdom is the beginning of the whole process of consciousness. Wisdom is almost all light. Very little vessel, more light than vessel. Because the wisdom, the creative genius doesn't necessarily have, not necessarily the most articulate person. The person who's very ingenious and seeing things no one else sees and and coming up with creative ideas, doesn't necessarily have the skills to develop those ideas. I mean, the person who ever invented the tablet, I don't think we ever know who invented the tablet. Everyone knows of Steve Jobs. But no one knows the creative geniuses. He's, he's, he didn't have an ounce of creativity inside him. But he was an excellent marketer and skillful marketer. So he got all the credit. He made all the billions. History is littered. You know, the McDonald brothers died. They sold it for, for pennies. They had no idea what they what they invented. Columbus died in jail, in debt. America is named after Ego. He, 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 got all the glory because he went to town. He understood. He realized what Columbus discovered, and he went to town with it, and he got all the glory. It's named after him. Columbus died in disgrace, and that's the story—typical story of most inventors, because that's their geniuses. It's more light than vessel. They don't have a vessel to capture it, to package it, to sell it, to communicate it. It's all about themselves. The process that's going on inside of them. They have a window to the soul. And they see things that no one else sees, and they see, and they do the impossible, and they're able to. But it's more light. It's more soul. You know, they're open to the soul. They, they, they don't have their. They don't care about commercial success. They don't care about. Their satisfaction is the creative process itself is what's most satisfying to them. Bringing into being. Bringing into being, like giving birth. You know. And, and by the way, most entrepreneurs. Who are geniuses in founding companies? The moment they found the company, they lose interest. They have to sell it to someone else who can develop the company and take it. They don't have the. They don't. That's not their interest to sit and to nurse. They, they gave birth to the baby. Okay, next there's the George Washingtons, the pioneers. They start it, and then 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 you have to have a whole different set of skills to nurture it, to endurance to build it up. So this is Chachma. Chachma is almost all light and very little vessel. Of course it has a vessel also. Because ultimately the creative genius ultimately has to bring it down into words and pass it on to the next level. Which is bidna, which is the analytical ability to develop an idea, to cultivate an idea, to spell it out, to articulate it, to take this raw concept, take this baby, this seed, and the mother in the mother's womb it takes this seed and develops it into a full-fledged baby. And that takes nine months. Where did he get this seed? How did he get from this seed to this fully fledged, 248 limbs, 365 veins? It was all contained in the seed. But it's a different ability. The ability of the father is, is the creative spark. And then he's gone. <laughs> that, that's, you know, there's nothing more to contribute. That's not his strength. It's a whole different set of skills. The, the, uh, the analytical person maybe doesn't have one ounce of creativity in him. But he, but he give him an idea, oh, and he can take this idea and and it becomes explosive and expands and it grows and that's like the hay. That's what he described. The hay is broad breath, the line on top, and then when you develop it and it rows and then you also have the lines going down. He has the ability to convey it. He has the ability to pass it on. He can explain it. He can articulate it. He can take the architect's idea and then start building a structure well, there's an entrance, and there's a foyer, and there's a ground floor, and a second floor, and a third floor, and there's rooms and compartments. Everything is organized. And from that one idea, one piece of paper, suddenly you have a huge mansion. That's the ability, that's the engineering ability of the of architect. Uh, of the builder. That's, that's Bina, that's the next level. So that's more vessel than light. But Chachma is more light than vessel. It also has a vessel. There are also words and letters there, but primarily, predominantly, it's light. That's why he says all the ten Svirot, including Chachma, there's a light and there's a vessel. He says it's included in the letters in the word of Yudke Vavke Hashem's name, and it's also hinted at. But then, when he goes specifically, and he describes the yud, how the yud represents the creative ability, the Chachma, there he doesn't even he only mentions it that it's hinted at. It hints at. It hints at. Um, God's wisdom, because it's more light than a vessel. It's more undefined. It's, it's so therefore, it's just hinted at in the letter yud. He can't really say the yud contains it. It's just the Yud, the dot of the Yud hints at the idea of Chachma, the creative ability. But then he adds in the parentheses, in 1043, that there's also a thorn above the Yud, which represents, and there he says, not it's hinted at, it hints at. It indicates, it hints at God's will or the subconscious, or God's will, which completely transcends the Chachma, like we described earlier, that God Himself is undefined, and therefore you can't even say, not only doesn't the word and the letter contain God's essence, it doesn't even hint at God's essence. Because even the riddle, a riddle, yes, the words and letters are too limited to convey the depth of the riddle. But at least it hints at the depth of it. But then you have a level where you can't even hint at. Like we say in the beginning of the Ten Commandments, the very first opening of the Ten Commandments starts out with Anoichi, I who am I, Hashem, God's name, Melokecha, your God. So the Medrash says Anoichi, means I who am I, I who am I that cannot be contained and can't even be hinted at with any word or any letter you can't call me by any name all you can say is I who am I it, it, even the name Yudkei Vavke which is God's personal name essential name exclusive name it's a word it's a letter it, There are letters it's a word it describes it's a description it's a definition God is undescribable God is beyond definition
0: but there is no name.
1: There is no name. Ultimately, Anoichi, I or am I. Not that the word Anoichi contains God. God can't be contained in any word. The moment you open your mouth and you say something, there were two Hasidim who were in Israel and they were discussing God. So one turns to the other. He says, So how would you describe God? He says, How can I describe God? He says, Yeah, but you know, you've learned so many years. Just tell me. And he opens his mouth and he says, Ah. Oh, You've already you already missed the whole point. The moment you open your mouth, the moment you say anything, you're already not describing God, because God is indescribable.
0: So is it based then on the experience, the direct experience that you were, going, you were saying before, once you tra- try to translate it into the consciousness of the word or the letters, it's lost. So, given the fact that you can't describe Hashem, Is your knowledge of his existence based solely on your direct correspondence on other realms? Right. Is that how we validate?
1: Right. So being, you know, we're talking here of the Jewish soul. And we have directly experienced God, every one of us. The Jewish people directly experienced God at Sinai. Every Jewish soul was present at Sinai. We directly experience God with the exodus, miraculous exodus, the whole sojourn in the, in the desert of 40 years, and frankly, throughout our whole history. Our survival is completely miraculous. Israel's survival its a total miracle. You can delude yourself and attribute it to your might and to your strength and to your cleverness, but it's a miracle. You know, in... Um, in West Point. Israeli chief of staff once visited West Point and he was a little taken aback. He he says, they don't teach. He realized they don't teach there. The Six-Day War. He says, I don't understand. This is like a modern battle. You should study, be studying this war. You know, they study every battle in the world. And the American chief of staff responded. He says, is we don't study miracles. (laughs) He says, we study study military strategy, we can't study miracles. You know, you can't even delude yourself that it it was brilliant. It was a miracle. So, for a Jew, we've experienced godliness. Godliness is not something we learn. It's not just from the consciousness. It's something that we sense with every fiber of our being and every bone in our body from the inside out. And yes, that is the level of pure being, and that's why he brings it in the parentheses. Because it's important for us to know this, even though here he's discussing the ten spheras, beginning with wisdom. So why, why does he find it important to explain the thorn on top of the yud? All that's important for us is to know about the yud. The yud, the dot, represents wisdom, the beginning of the consciousness. Because this is important to the whole theme that he's describing here. How is it possible for us to mend? How is it possible to do Teshuvah? Despite all the failures and setbacks and scars and, and, and bitterness and harshness that we've introduced, the barriers that we've created, negative feelings. You know, He says because ultimately there is a level. It's totally beyond. And that's the thorn on top. That's not hinted at by the thorn on top of the yod. But just like the word Anoichi, Anoichi describes God, but no word can describe God. We're only using the words, we have to say something, (laughs) because that's the only way we can communicate, is by using words. So we say, Anoichi, I, who am I? Not that the I contains God. No word in the world is big enough to contain, to define, to describe the indescribable, to define the undefinable. It can't even be hinted at, it's not like even a riddle. It's not contained in these words at all. It just indicates we have to use a word, so we use a word to indicate we're talking about the indescribable. So we say anoichi, I, And that's why anoichi has no holiness to it. You can erase anoichi, because anoichi is not actually an Egyptian word. I, who am I, has no holiness to it. Even though it's referring to God, yud would vav the letters, you're not allowed to erase, you have to be careful you write the letter Yudkei Vavke, it's God's name, it's holy. You're not allowed to erase it, you have to be careful, you can't just throw in the garbage, it's holy. Because the words and the letters of Yudkei Vavke, the word and the letters contain and hint at, like the riddle, it hints at God's holiness. God, the ten attributes, divine attributes, which God elicited from himself. So therefore, they contain holiness. The words itself and the letters actually contains God's holiness. So you have to treat it with reverence. The word Anaychi has no holiness Even though it's talking about God himself, God's essence, that's undefinable and described. Precisely because we're talking about God's essence, it can't even be hinted at. He just says it's Rime as it indicates, because we have to use a word. So to the thorn on top of the Yud, hints, indicates, a level that's completely beyond definition and description and beyond even, even the ability to hint at. It, it cannot be contained. So we just, we have to talk about it. So we put the crown on top of the Yud to indicate. that we're indicating a level that's completely beyond words and beyond letters and can't even be hinted. And that's important for the theme of Teshuvah. That's why Teshuvah is possible. Because no matter how far gone we are, no matter what, how far we've gone, and a person thinks, I've lost my innocence, I've lost my purity, there's no way back home. How can I find my way back? I've messed up so badly. And the answer is no. There is that place. It's untouchable. That purity. And even while you sinned, there was a place inside of you that remained pure. Even while you messed up and you were such a... <laughs> All the adjectives we can use. There was a place in you. And that is your essence. That you completely oblivious of. It doesn't change the reality. It has a life of its own. It's real. That's the ultimate reality. Everything else is not and Everything else is superficial and external. That is your core reality. That is your core connection with Hashem. And that no one can touch, no one can mess up, no one can harm, no one can... And it's not just something that's abstract, or something otherworldly. No. You can actually bring that and internalize that into your daily life, into your consciousness, into the realm of words and letters. Because, you know, it's like a child. You know, we say by the bris, we say just like you entered, we say to the child or right after the bris, just like you entered the covenant of Abraham, so you should enter to the covenant of Torah mitzvah. What are we wishing the child? Just like the mitzvah of bris, it's the one mitzvah that's fulfilled, you're completely unself conscious. The child has no idea what's going on. The child, it's pure. So we wish the child, even when you grow up and you become an adult and you become self conscious, you should fulfill the Torah mitzvah with that same unself consciousness of a baby. No ego, it's pure. Even when you speak and even when you'll experience words and letters and you live in that realm, Words don't have to alienate you from your soul. Words don't have to distance you from your soul. It's up to us. We can, through teshuvah, we can turn around. That those words become suddenly living words, life-giving words, nourishing words, sustaining words. That's the type of life we can live. Everything that we do nourishes our innocence and nourishes our purity and strengthens us and nurtures us. So we can take, we can bridge the gap. We can take that pure experience and internalize it into the world of words and letters. And that's why it's the crown. It's the crown that's connected to the Yud. They're connected. And where does the Yud come from? The Yud comes from that crown. You, you know, you start with the crown and then you continue in the Yud. It, everything is contained within Hashem. God is infinite, and God elicited from within Himself the ten Svirot. And God contains within Himself the tensevira. But over there, it's in a whole different tensevira, not only not in contradiction, but they actually fully express and completely unify within God. So, therefore, we have the ability through Teshuvah not only to reach a place, recreate that purity and innocence, but we can also cleanse and heal, and mend all that dark places, and all the negativity, transform the negativity into, into positive. Transform the negative into positive, the sin into a mitzvah, the bitterness into sweetness, darkness into light. You can take words and letters and continents and totally turn it around, and make it entirely something new, something different. Take that negative experience, and turn it into something totally positive. This is the power of Teshuvah, and this is what Elijah the prophet this was the theme of his life and that's why his statement explains his whole life explains the whole theme of his life why tshuva is possible because you God who is infinite and undefined elicited from within you the ten sfirot and the ten sfirot the way they are within you are completely unknown so therefore we also have the ability to tap into that and to draw it down And therefore, to completely transform our lives. To make it wholesome. Deal with all the negativity and make it good. And restore our health, spiritual health. And restore our wholesomeness. And transform the negativity into positive. And then he continues. The Vav. So we have the Yud, which is the Dat, which is the creative idea. Then you have the He, which is the Bina. The understanding, the analysis, the analytical mind, articulate, the engineering of this concept. Then you have the Vav. Again, that's the Hebrew language, the language, the word itself, the letter itself, the shape of the letter, conveys the actual meaning, the content of what it represents. The Vav represents the six emotional attributes. A, if the Vav represents drawing down, when a person has an idea, has a concept, then you, because you're driven by your love, beginning with the first emotion, which is love, and ending with the sixth emotion, which is chemistry, connection, when you feel a chemistry, you feel a connection with someone. So you want to give them. That's the motivation, the drive, to take this idea and to share. A person could have rich ideas and be rich with experience and ideas, but if you have no emotional connection you have no motivation to share it with anyone, because I don't care. I don't care about you. But when you care about someone, then you, you have that connection that draws you out. That draws you down, like the Vav that goes down a straight line. It draws you out and it draws you down to take all that inner richness and to communicate it and to share it. And also you have Vav, six emotional attributes, from love to connection. And then comes the "hey. The he that's where we left off last week. Page ten forty-five, in the middle of the page. The "hey," that represents God's speech, the actual speech and communication. And communication is king, that's why it's called royalty. Because a king is royalty. A king is all about speech. Speech on one hand, represents the receiving speech is just a vehicle. The speech contains the feeling, the idea. Speech is nothing of its own. Speech is just a vehicle. The words contain the way you communicate an idea. You need words to communicate, to capture an idea, to capture a feeling, to be able to convey it, to communicate it, to share it. You have to have words. Without words, the other person doesn't know what you're feeling or doesn't know what you're thinking. And words are not about yourself. Words are entirely about the other person. Getting into the other person's brain. Communication is when you're able to communicate to the other person. You have to know where the other person is at and have to communicate to them. That's communication. You have to be brutally honest with yourself, remove yourself from the picture and really focus on the other person. You don't need communication for yourself. Emotions, even though they're in relation with the other person, I love the other person. But they are characterizations of yourself. They define you. I love this other person. I'm repulsed by this person. It's all me in my relationship to the other person, how the other person characterizes me and shapes me and defines me. But emotions, I can sit alone and have emotions in relation to the other person. I love the other person, I hate the other person. So it's, it's, a, it's a self-characterization. Speech is all about the other person. If you're alone, you don't need speech. If you're alone, your heart can ache in pain. I'm lonely, I ache in pain companionship. So yes, it's my relationship to the outside world, to the other, but it's my relationship to the other. Speech, without the other person, if you're Robinson Crusoe, there's no Speech. You're all alone. There's no need for speech. Speech doesn't exist. Who needs speech? Who are you going to talk to yourself? Speech begins with the other person. When there's another person, then I need speech to communicate to the other person. So it's not about me. It's about the other person. And the ultimate communicator is king. Who is king? King is the communicator. The one who has the ability to communicate is king. The one who has the ability to receive all the wisdom, you know, all the treasured wisdom, stored wisdom of his ancestors that comes before him. And he has the ability to communicate that wisdom and, and convey it and communicate it in a way that people can understand it and people could receive it and really get into their head and get into their shoes and really communicate. The communicator is king. Again, it wasn't, it wasn't the creative geniuses behind all of these inventions that made it. It was Steve Jobs who was king. <laughs> you know, the one who communicated it, who had the ability to Make products that people want it. Everyone else makes genius products, but nobody wants it. Because they're not listening to the customer, and they're not paying attention to the customer. You know, His whole life was the customer. Give the customer what he wants. Don't give him something that he ought to want, he should want. He doesn't. Have it. You have to communicate to the other person, to the customer, where he is. The customer is always right. It's a whole different skill. It's a whole different set of skills. Totally remove yourself from the picture and really put yourself in the other person's shoes. Very few people have that ability. Whoever has that ability is king.
0: The prophets, though, they, when they communicated, it wasn't them, it wasn't their, their words.
1: It was Hashem's, right. But Hashem was communicating through them. It was a communication. Hashem was communicating through them. So he says, this is also hinted at in the letter. Just like we learned, the wisdom is hinted at the letter Yud, the Sadat. Bina, the engineering of the idea is represented in the letter He, the shape of the He. The first He. Then the Vav, the fact that it's shaped downward. Because this is what motivates you to, drives you, you want to communicate. You want to share all that inner wealth. And also the ten emotional attributes, the Vav, six, and that comes to the hey. The hey is communication. Where do you see it in the letter hey? That's where we left off last week. Page 1045, the second paragraph from the bottom. This attribute of sovereignty... This of,
0: attribute of sovereignty is contained and represented in the final hey of the Tetragrammaton in the following manner. The internal aspect and source of speech is the breath that rises from the heart, then is particularized into the five oral articulations, five being numerical equivalent of the letter A. One of these produces the bracket of letters Aleph, A, A and Ion from the throat. Another produces the bracket of letters Bait, Mem, and Pai from the lips, and so on.
1: How do we speak? how how do we form words letters so first you have you have the breath from the lungs you have the breath and when the breath makes its way through the mouth and how you shape your mouth it forms different letters basically all the 22 letters are divided into five families five categories of words for example, the um, the aleph, the ches, the hay, and the ayin all come from the throat, where the the sound, the the, the ear, um, the ear comes out of the throat, and it produces the aleph, the ches, the hay, the ayin, the bays. When you say bays, try saying b b, You see, your lips, your lips are touching. Vov, your lips are touching. Mem right, pay, so these are the, all the family, family of letters are produced by the same movements of the, the lips coming together, and then you have certain letters, the dalit, say dalad, your tongue is touching the palate of your mouth, Dalad. Tess. you feel it, right, it's amazing, we can go through our whole life and not even realize what we do when we speak, <laughs> it's the amazing thing about speech. It's not like studying accordion or studying piano. You have to take music lessons. It, it's automatic and you go through it's unselfconscious. conscious. You can go through your whole life, you don't even realize what you're doing. You don't have to stop and think, okay, now let me move the the tongue to the top of the palate of the mouth. You don't even think about it. As a matter of fact, special needs children. People who got to become paralyzed. You have to train someone who can't speak naturally to train them how to speak. I mean violin is nothing in comparison. To learn how to to play violin, how complex it is to learn how to speak. And yet we all do it automatically, we don't even think about it. Because it's not mechanical. That's the proof that we have a soul. It's unselfconscious. The soul has words and the soul wants to speak. And automatically the body speaks. You're not even conscious, you don't even think about what you're doing. You just do it automatically. Just like everything else that the body does, like digesting and breathing. and The body regulates and, and the whole... The wonder the 100 trillion cells are working masterfully together, you know, of course, it's totally beyond the rational consciousness. Anyone who says that reality is just rational consciousness and doesn't believe that there is something that's totally beyond the rational, just look at yourself. 99.9% of what, how our 100 trillion cells manage and organize themselves is completely unself conscious, it's completely miraculous, totally beyond you know, it's it's beyond, uh, it's off the charts. How is it even possible?
0: We have nothing to do with
1: it. We have nothing to do with it.
0: So why is a baby not given the ability to speak? Because something pretty miraculous, my uh, niece taught the baby sign language. A year and a half old, she doesn't physically have the ability to speak. We're at the planetarium. She's signing the word stars. At one and a half. So we know now from this whole story that the ability to communicate or, or the desire to communicate is there and the recognition is there, but how do they explain, you know, how is it explained that?
1: Exactly. Children could be very smart and yet they don't have words. Yet. Because that just proves words come from a much deeper place. Words don't come from the conscious mind. Words come from the subconscious mind. So they have to develop. They have to develop when the soul is ready, then they start speaking. And, you know, it's like, it's like so it's not just, because here you see they're very smart, they're very precautious, obviously, and yet they can't speak. They don't have that ability. So the ability to speak doesn't come from the conscious mind. It's not something, it's not like learning piano, learning learning to play violin. It's not a conscious effort. It's when the soul is ready. It's like, like it's like ability to have children. Children have the ability to have children. Don't have the ability to have children. When you reach maturity, you reach puberty. The beard starts growing. When you reach puberty, that's when the body, that's when your soul is ready, and your soul reveals its ability to, to give to give birth. Um, you can have children who are more brilliant than, than, than some 90-year-olds, but they're not mature. They don't have that ability. The soul isn't developed yet. It hasn't yet. It's not ready yet. So, too, the soul is not ready yet to speak. When the soul is ready to speak, then speech enters our life and is completely unselfconscious. But
0: each kid develops, each kid speaks at a different Different time. time, yeah.
1: But everyone, whenever their soul is ready, and, you know, you can't, you can't, you can't force it, you can't push it. Children could be very smart. You see they're smart, and yet they, they just don't have the ability to speak it. So speech comes from the self-conscious. Speech is a soulful activity. It's the proof that we have a soul. If you're honest and objective about it, it's the proof that we're not just mechanics. We're not just machines. You know, our whole consciousness is a little overrated. <laughs> it's like the part that we're in control of is like the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. Zero, 1.1% of our whole organism we're in charge of. And we have the habri to think that we're in charge and we're in control. We're in charge of nothing, we're in control of nothing, we're in control of even less. <laughs> you know, we don't decide when to be born, we don't decide which parents to be born, we don't decide which circumstances are going to be born into, which century to be born into. All those things, you know, it's overrated what we think we're in control and we're in charge. You're in charge of nothing and you're in control of even less. The only thing you are in control of is to be a man, not to be a man. And that's the one thing we have no time to do because I'm so busy controlling everything I'm not in control of (laughs) that that I have no time to find time to study a little Torah, to find time to pray a little, to do a mitzvah, to connect with Hashem, to think about my purpose in life, why am I here, fulfill my mission in life, otherwise my whole life is a waste. That I have no time for. (laughs) Keep Shabbos, but the one thing in my life that I have control over, that I have no time for. The areas of my life that I have zero control over—how much money I'm going to make, how much is that—we we spend all our time. It's, it's an upside-down world. But the more we understand today, the more we realize how infinitely complex the body is—100 trillion cells. I mean, my God, ooh, you know, anyone who can think that any of this is just just accident, haphazard, it just happened, and we take ourselves so seriously. Me, myself, and I, and ego, and arrogance. I mean, it's, it's just, it's silly. It's, it's childish. Insane. It's insane. insane. It's pure insanity. It's blind faith. <laughs> Not to believe in God is blind faith. I mean, it, it, it's irrational. It's, it's absurd. So the sound, the breath comes, and it's the different shapes. The way we move our lips, and the way we move our tongue, and the way the... the the breath um, goes against our, our throat, creates these different letters. So all the letters, the inner, the inner part of words and letters are the breath. But what gives it the shape? It's the five different families of words that gives, gives it a different shape. The lips, the tongue touching the palate of the mouth, the throat... That's the hay. The hay represents the five different different ways in which the breath goes up against and gives it the the particular shape of the letters. That's the hay. The hay represents the five different like you just read. And then and and also another explanation on top of page ten forty-six.
0: At any rate, the internal aspect of speech is breath. In particular, the enunciation of the letter He is solely unvocalized breath, as in the phrase, a light letter without substance. Emanating as it does solely from the breath, it alludes to the level of Malkut and speech whose internal aspect is breath.
1: The He also represents breath, because He is like Ha. When you breathe, you breathe in and then you breathe out. Ha. <coughs> So breath is represented by hey. Hey is like a breath. It's the closest letter. So it's like a breath. It has no mamushas. It has no very little shape, very little definition. It's, just, it's almost pure breath. Ha. Ha. Ha is you're expelling your breath. Ha. So the breath is behind all the letters. All the letters, no matter how you shape it, whether you move your lips together or your, your, your tongue touches the palate of your mouth or through your throat... But all the letters are breath, but the breath goes through the different movements of your mouth to give it the different sounds. But what's behind all these sounds? It's the same breath. That's the hay. the hay represents the breath. So the hay represents the breath. The hay represents the five different ways of breaking down five different categories of families of breaking down the different sounds made by different movements. Of your lips, of your mouth, of your tongue, your throat. So that's all represented in the letter hey. So the letter hey represents speech, communication. So you, here you see the beauty of the Hebrew language. It's the holy language, Lashon Hakodesh. It's God's language. It's the language with which God creates the world. How precise it is. The letters. The shape of the letters actually represents the name that it's called and then represents the actual thing that, 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 that's named. There's an inner connection. Just like here, Yud Kei Vav there's an inner connection between the letters and the Ten Svirot, God's divine emanations. In the shape of the Yud, in the shape of the he, in the shape of the Vav, in the shape of the Last day. Actually is represented and included in these letters. So much so, these letters become holy letters because it contains God's name. This class
0: is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at lessonsintanya.com.